Hey there, film fans. Oh, Jeff started the Jeff. show on the wrong RPM. Uh, <laughs> Someone turned him up to hey, 45. Phil. God, come on. In the intro, we never get through an intro. Hi there, film fans. My name is Jeff. I'm Dave. And I'm John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we challenge one another to discuss movies both new and old with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to avoid any lazy negativity, we are making this a drinking game. Yes, it is. Drinking game. And since I'm in my childhood basement, my parents bought my beer. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Thanks for watching. <laughs> Jeff still can't buy That's beer. That's right. This is a positive <laughs> criticism podcast. We focus on positive critique. We don't like those stuffy old negative podcasts. So anytime we say anything negative or let's say stupid about a film, you're going to hear this sound. And... <laughs> it's going well. It's going well. There you go. <laughs> There's the sound. You're going to hear that sound, and that sound means we're drinking. And we would love for you at home to drink along to Happy Sunday. <laughs> so pour yourselves a glass and give it up for the films we love. And there's a film at the end might need some love in our last yeah, segment. Maybe. We'll see what we'll see how it happens. It's a very special segment. Oh uh, welcome to yeah. everyone joining us on Twitch. Now we're on yeah, Twitch. First time on Twitch. And we're doing this with video. Which meant right. you know, pants and all. Pants and all, pants and all. Um, yes, we're going to be talking about films from 1975. We've chosen three specific films. We're going to talk more about them after John cues us up with some quick shout-outs. Shout-outs! All right, as always, we want to give it up for our beer sponsor. Yes, we are not drinking his beers, unfortunately, but he is our beer sponsor. He's been with us from the very beginning. You can find him on Instagram. His name is Carlos Barozo. The handle is C Bar 2019. That is C B A R R O Z O B A R 2019. And as always, the music you hear on this podcast and every single episode of our podcast is the stuff you heard at the beginning. It's by the artist Dasein. That is Dasein, D A S E I N. You can find the music available for free downloads at soundcloud.com forward slash Dasein dash artist. Ooh, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We are talking about films from 1975. People, our 75. random year generator chose that. Has his system in place in which we can choose films to talk about. We started out to do some live films, or not live, some current films, and trying to compare them to some classics that we think if you like this film, then you would like that film. And then, of course, uh, cinema's closed for a while. Uh, and so mm -hmm. we actually did a, a coronavirus franchise face off where we took, it ended up 20 franchises, and we did a head to head bout of all of them until we decided. What was the greatest franchise? If you would like to see more about that, please go back into our feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. YouTube now. They're on YouTube as well. And now they're on YouTube. Yeah. So we and are here. Be here. <laughs> out here doing uh, films of, of, a, of a year, of a given year. And the Random Year Generator last week assigned 75, which was a fantastic film year. A couple really big classic films, some all-timers, if you will. But without spoiling the fun too much, I'm going to move on to our usual round of news or what you've been watching. And we like to start with our Australian friend, Dave. Dave, what you've been watching? I, I haven't been, I had a, a long work week this week. So uh, like we're back at the office a fair bit. Oh. So I didn't really get the chance to watch much. But the big news this week was mm -hmm. Wonder Woman going to streaming and cinemas yeah. on December 25th. Yeah. Uh, is it the beginning of the end? Are they giving up? 
I don't think so. No, no, no. no. I don't. I don't even mm. think we should put that out there. I feel like they're just adapting and trying to make the most of it. That's just facing the facts for right now, isn't it? That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I, that's I mean, why it's we're on DC, Twitch. It's a it's a DC <laughs> film, and DC notoriously doesn't know how to manage their properties. So, <laughs> whoa, uh, and that's Dave. what happens, folks, when you get called out that way. If Marvel did it, I'd freak out. But yeah, we'll see. I'm kind of making a list of all the things that I'll probably end up, you know, watching. It, 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 this is what I've been thinking about, you guys. The past several years, anyone who has listened to our show or is in the cinema news at all, you've kind of been hearing the debate that's going on about streaming services like Amazon Prime and Netflix. Those movies that they release for Oscar season and their big movies around the holiday season in general, they just go straight to their service and you can watch it with your subscription fee. So now there is a handful of movies that Netflix is about to release as their Oscar picks, Hillbilly Elegy and some other things like that. And we're going to be able to watch those for free. I don't know if I'm going to spend 30 bucks to see Wonder Woman when there's going to be a, a plethora of other movies that are going to be released uh, just because of our subscriptions to these other services. I might pay $30 it's to see Dune. That it's unclear whether they're charging for it. I think they're just going to put it on the service to try and draw I mean, people awesome, to the service. But, but uh, they should. speaking of Netflix, actually, just to get off that for a second, did you see uh, Stranger Things picked up a new cast member? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, Robert England season. is joining Stranger Things season four. <laughs> that guy comes up on our pod all the yeah. time. <laughs> what, what, what? Yeah. And, and given, given it's the as bad, age... It's almost as bad as Tenet. Oh, we hit our tenet. Hey, we hit our tenet quota for the episode already. Um, I think Stranger Things. By, by the time they actually uh, film this thing, Robert Anglin is going to be about the same age as all the kids. <laughs> same height, at least. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Um, what are you drinking, no, Jeff? Eight uh, percent. Um, I. <laughs> No, I, I, I think, started. I mean, it's a calculated risk. HBO is desperate for HBO Max. People are still kind of complaining about it and bickering and, and you know, maybe this is their play. The, the, I the irony HBO about Max. this model, especially Me the, too. no, I love it too, but it's just people are confused about why it, it exists. Why doesn't Roku have the deal yet? Why, why is that still up in the air? Apple TV, if you don't get the new Apple TV or you haven't done the update, you don't have HBO Max. So it was, unru- for, for a huge company, it was unraveled clunkily. Now, they may have thought they had it all figured out, but if you've been paying attention to uh, our country this year, the past couple of years, things don't happen seamlessly at the same time as everybody else. And the fact that they thought they were going to release this app and overnight everybody was just going to switch from HBO to HBO Max, uh, they were clearly wrong. And so maybe this is sort of their Netflix-esque ploy to just put too much money into something. And so that way it can get it generated up and everything. Because the whole model of spending 30 dollars for these movies works for kids movies where you have kids and you're going to watch it 10 times in the first week or groups if we were together watching any of these movies we would pay ten dollars each he would venmo me and and we would watch it together we can't hang out so i'm going to watch this to Mm. watch it by myself in my basement i'm going to spend thirty dollars but even i'm even gonna and i'm gonna i'm gonna follow up on that and say that even the mindset of going to the movies because so people there are so few americans who consistently go to the cinema anyway nowadays that what have we done we all bought our a-list memberships or the movie pass so we we were even with our cinema experience we were already in a subscriber mindset right before this pandemic hit so i can't remember the last time i spent 30 dollars on a single movie i haven't done that in years i've been a member of one of those services for a long time i try to go to movies in the movie theater before you know shit hit the fan so i think this is wise for them to just go ahead and lean into this as much as possible Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's some stuff they're going to need to talk about with how they negotiate fresh releases to streaming services. But I guarantee you the money is there to be made. They just need to 
maybe change some of the ways they used to do those deals. It's no longer it's no longer a back-end distribution to a streaming service that's lined up two weeks after a DVD release. So maybe they just need to renegotiate some stuff, but it's the same concept. It's the same premise. Why would I spend extra money to see something when I wasn't doing that last year when things were normal? Yep, you know what I mean? Um, uh, Dave, I thought... Dave, I think you said the big news is. I thought the big news is going to be the announcement of Deadpool three. I thought that's going to be the thing. Oh that no, was going I, to that, that's. I mean, they they've announced Deadpool three six fucking times. It's <laughs> it's. I'm until until I see a like one of Ryan Reynolds' joke trailers, I'm not signing on board for this at all. Like, it's there's so there's so much shit. Like, um, Tatiana Maslany was She Hulk, and then she wasn't, and you know, then something else happened, and it didn't in the same week. It's like nobody's bothering to check their fucking sources anymore. So this could be the same bullshit we've had for the last six weeks. Okay. Do you think Rick Moranis? <laughs> do you think Do you think Rick Moranis is going to be in this one? Have you seen that commercial with Brian Reynolds and Rick Moranis? Oh he yeah, needs a, he needs a win. He He's got to be in there. He's got to be in there. He somewhere. <laughs> got hit in the uh, face. He's got to be in. All right, I watched. More West Wing this this year. Cool. Uh, this past week was really fun, but I also did. Yeah. But I also watched Battleship, which Dave talked about <laughs> last week. It's one of my I had no idea that was an alien movie. That came out of fucking nowhere yeah. for me. So <laughs> Battleship was directed by Peter Berg. Anyone? Give me your my Friday Night Lights fans. My uh, Patriot Day. What else did he make? The um, um, um the Lone uh, Survivor. The, Lone Survivor and the oil rig one. Anyway, so I did not. So this is his action movie. So it feels all the it's all the multicam, you know, tons and tons of editing. Everyone, there's like five camera operators with cameras just running around on battleships and he's just cutting together stuff. It's got all the music you think it would have. It just also has an alien invasion. (laughs) (laughs) A very shiny alien invasion. I had... I had much more fun than I thought I would. I didn't even consider seeing that movie when it was in the theaters. I don't think they marketed it correctly. I did not know that's what it was, but it, it is was pretty fun. It's fun. on HBO Max. Yeah. I think it's on HBO Max if you nice. want to get a little drunk and have fun watching that shit. Jeff, what'd you watch? Um, The Crown. I'm in, man. I love The oh, Crown. Oh, fuck, yeah. I haven't crown. started yet. Uh, people are losing I, their mind I think this. I think this is the best season yet so far. I, I'm only I'm six episodes in. The way they introduced Diana is is perfect. It, it subverted my expectations in the perfect way. It was sweet. It was innocent. It was you know it's not what I expected. And then to watch her slowly take over the family and and the the fame and just the way they ease Ooh, into it and then they dude. back off it and then they go back to the queen. Goosebumps, dude. It's it was it was really it's really something. I, I'm really into it. I need to do cool. it. I need to do it. Thank you. Um yeah, and then Queen's Gambit's next. Okay, so cool. Mm. It's time for us to move on. People, we're talking about. Yeah, no more no, Jackie. I, she, she finished. No, we're still. Another oh yeah, time, because you're not time. together. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Got it. Got it. In the same All place. Right. But she she started the Queen's Gambit without me. Did she listen to my podcast and know how much Aww. I wanted to watch it? And then she watched. Well, doesn't Aww. matter. Hey, come on. Yeah. It's all love. People, we're talking about films from 1975 here on the podcast today. It is time for us to move on. 1975 was the year generated by our random year generator. So. Number one at the box office, one of the most important films of all time. <laughs> it's gotta Jones. be Jaws. What, what else is Jaws? You got Jaws. Jaws. Why are we singing Jaws? Jaws? <laughs> <laughs> That's a Bill Murray yeah. reference there for all of my Bill Murray SNL, SNL forty. Oh god. Oh my God, I can't remember the rest of it. It's so good. Uh, so Jaws, $133 million at the box office domestically, worldwide over 200. And if that doesn't sound like a lot, uh, third place is $23 million. 
<laughs> so it was five times as much as third place. Uh, Cuckoo's Nest actually did pretty well. Um, I don't know if there's re-release numbers that have messed into this, but Jaws is considered to be the, the first blockbuster of all time, which premiered on a whopping 400 screens at the same time. 400 screens is so about how many screens is there are. The time. Yeah. That's how many there are in California right now. Right now, I think usually you get like a 2,000, three, are there 3,000 releases? It's usually between two and three. That's usually like a 2,500 is yeah. pretty standard apparently that happened, for, a, for a pretty good release. That happened because of Jaws. So Jaws 1975, we could have talked about Jaws. It's November. You, you all know Jaws is great. We, we could talk about it for 4th of July next week. I spent a lot of time in Cape Cod thinking about Jaws this summer. We did not choose Jaws as one of our films. Uh, number two is our, our first film that we're going to be discussing, which is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at $59 million which is a lot of money. And Jack Nicholson did get back-end gross points for that, so he got very wealthy with this movie. Mm. Uh, number three, mm-hmm. ba- so all the, all the other movies are going to be in like the $20 million range. So you have Shampoo, Shampoo Next, which is a Warren Beatty film. You have Dog Day mm-hmm. Afternoon, our second film that we're going to be discussing, comes in at 22.5. Return of the Pink Panther, Peter Sellers, get at me. You got Three Days of the Condor, which is a Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway film directed by Sidney Pollack. Funny Lady, number seven, never heard of it. You have The Other Side of the Mountain at number eight. Tommy, which by the way, Tommy was apparently my parents' first date was to go see Tommy. I, I can't, it actually, wow. it actually worked out. It actually worked. Tommy is one of the weirdest goddamn movies I've ever seen in my life. And that was their first date. So sentimental value in the Ostermuller household for the film Tommy. I mean, way to set the introduced- bar. <laughs> and then you have um then you have the apple dumpling gang at number 10 moving over to the academy awards this is our weekly reminder that we're not obsessed with the academy awards but it is a tent pole as to uh, the legacy of of this year some you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest won the big five is what they mm. call it it's one of only like four or five films to do this where it wins best picture best director best writing actor and actress the big five so you have milos foreman wins for directing um, producer Michael Douglas. I looked into this. The reason Michael Douglas was a co-producer on One, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, his father, Kirk Douglas, owned the film rights in the 60s because he wanted to star in the Broadway play, in the play adaptation in 1963. So he was the original Mick Murphy, so the Jack Nicholson character in 1963, yeah. and he I mean, owns if, the film rights. If I have a time machine, aside from getting a few screenwriters arrested um, with Planet Evidence, I want to see that production because it had Gene Wilder in it as well. It was Gene Wilder's Broadway debut as Billy. We'll talk more about that character, yeah. but a very, very tortured, suicidal uh, uh, stutterer. Really interesting character, and that was Gene fucking Wilder. Man. Um, yes, mm. okay, more films. Uh, yeah, so Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher... And then best adapted screenplay for Cuckoo's Nest. Um, other notables this year, you have Barry Lyndon, directed by Stanley Kubrick, a not very well known film of his now in his catalog. It's a very long film, gorgeous film. It's awesome. Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and then Nashville. Nashville comes out this year. You have a Fellini film, Amarcord, which is nominated for some awards. Uh, Shampoo's nominated for a bunch. We've already talked about that. The other notable films, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. So Scorsese is a Scorsese, right? You have yes, um, Aaron, Rocky, uh, Bernstein, uh, Ellen, Bernstein. Ellen Bernstein. Yeah. <laughs> you have the Rocky Horror Picture Show, nineteen seventy-five. So Special if you actually look at the, heart. if you look at the numbers of the box office tallies, 
the Rocky Horror Picture Show actually has a huge amount because they would do those midnight shows over the course of decades and decades and decades. So yeah. it has the Gone with the Wind thing yeah. where over years... Don't talk like it's in the past tense. Aside from the, aside from the cinemas shutting down, they were still doing it in like you know I, March this yeah. year. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Shout out. You have, oh my gosh, one of the best comedies of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It comes is. out in 1975. Uh, Three Days of the Con- Condor, I already said. Um, and then any other ones that I'm missing? I feel like I got the bulk of the ones that people would remember. I don't know. That was All I know is that was a three-drink mention- uh, year wrap-up there. So we- <laughs> Did you mention uh, Barry London? Yeah. Stanley Kubrick. And uh, I mentioned him last week in 1962. Uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, legendary Russian director. One of his greatest films, The Mirror, came out this year. Unbelievable. Oh, anybody cool. wants to give it out on Criterion and give it a shot. <laughs> Love anyway, that. Let's do it, yes, man. Let's that was a long it. intro, but 1975, huge year. It's going to remember as Jaws, but it's also going to remember as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Just, just another amazing year in the 70s. What a fucking decade oh, of yeah. movies. Like, good God. Yeah. It's, that's that's <laughs> well, the thing. Like, when you get to, uh, like, the 70s and, uh, in, to some extent, the 50s, uh, like, our last segment is, was it really that bad? And it becomes very hard with possibly the exception of this year to pick the movie we've done guys haven't we done four five and six 74 75 and 76 now i believe so we did we did exorcist that was 74 right so like we did 76 network and all those other films like Mm. my god we've just had had, yeah way too lucky that it's come up for three years in this decade was exorcist might have been 72 it doesn't matter uh we did yeah we did a lot of those years no you're totally right i think it's two all right so let's Um, take let's take our three viewers on a deep dive of uh Hey, it's our first time on Twitch. What do you want from us? All right, people. We're going to be talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest first. So this is always going to be remembered as Jack Jack Nicholson as Mick Nolte. It is based on the novel, the story, Mm. (laughs) A Criminal Pleads Insanity and to a Mental Institution, rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patience this is jack nicholson and has once again gotten himself into trouble and is sentenced by the court to escape labor duties or the work camp as they keep calling it (laughs) nick murphy pleads insanity and is sent to a ward for the mentally unstable once here mcmurphy endures and stands witness to abuse and degradation of the oppressive nurse ratchet who gains superiority and power through the flaws of the other inmates basically it's like a submission thing it's a power and submission um film and he basically takes a stand against it and tries to rally up all the other inmates. Directed by Milos Forman, this is the first of his two Oscars. He also directed Amadeus, and we talked about him. Um, well, I talk about him because he directs Amadeus all the time, but he also directed Hair, and um, yeah, good stuff. Anyway, who wants Man to go first? Man on the Moon. Man on the Moon, awesome. Yeah, just just we, just before we dive into this, uh, Je- Jeff, is that, uh, is that your dad chastising you in the chat there for... Uh... Okay, I'm, <laughs> well, I asked him a second ago. I was like, is anybody chatting? And then he just, yeah, I'm sure he's chastising me in the chat. What is he saying? Why can't I find it? It's like, it was a free movie and we saw it in 1978. I guess he's referring to Tommy. Oh my gosh, yeah, Tommy, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on his college. They met in college. You're, okay. so, you're so grounded. You're so grounded. All right. I'm grounded. Um, yeah, I just, I, th- <laughs> I, it's the really funny thing is like I somehow managed to have never seen the entirety of this film. So I went in hearing the legends, knowing the legends, knowing Netflix has made a series about, you know, Ratchet. 
And I, I had a discussion with my wife before I went in, and she was of the opinion that Nurse Ratchet, there's nothing wrong with anything she does. She's technically kind of the hero of the story because she's just trying to maintain control. And apart from kind of not feeling comfortable sleeping at night, um, now I uh, <laughs> I watched the movie and I, I sort of have to agree with her. Like, I, there are there are worse villains than Ratchet out there for sure. I mean, Umbridge in Harry Potter mm-hmm. is way worse yeah. than this woman. We're gonna have a fun debate. Keep but going. yet she's the legend. <laughs> she's like, yeah, she's she's the she's there's this whole legend and mythology built up. And I, I where I don't know where it's coming from from like the movie that I saw, but I do, I do love watching Jack Nicholson in a film where he's really restrained. Um, and he, he gives a, like, he knows, he doesn't steal scenes. He knows his moment. And sometimes he knows like the beats where he's just got to sit back and let someone else do it. And that's a mark of a really good performer. So I want to compliment that because that was like, he's always good at that. Unless he's the Joker. Yeah. In which case he's still in every fucking scene possible. Yeah. <laughs> do you give the director some credit for that? Because at this point he's a presence Nicholson. Oh, dude, Miller's Foreman. Can you imagine it's his second film in the U S so you, you've made one of the film in the US and they go, oh, yeah, we, we've been talking about this for a while. We're going to make this. Um, okay, who we got? Oh, we got Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dourif. Now, sure, nobody knew how good Brad Dourif was going to be at the time. But holy crap, what a cast for your second film out in the US. Yeah, yeah. And, and just the ego of Nicholson. I mean, Nicholson wins the Oscar for this movie and he gets up there and he thanks the first person who ever took a back-end credit for the film because it made him more money. That's that's his Oscar speech. So obviously we love Nicholson. I'm not knocking him for having an ego, but I mean, directing that, I, you know, he's a good sport. John, you, you know more about him. You read his autobiography, but I mean, the ego of this guy to go, it's perfect role for him with McNulty. And then he also subverts your expectation really, really well because he's always doing something. And so I feel like he does play it to the director well, where it's basically like, you show whatever you need to show, but I'm never going to be sitting still. Yeah. Those group therapy scenes where he's laughing and giggling and he's like looking around the room. Like he's never just listening. He's always actively listening, you know? And so that's kind of up to, I feel like it's up to the director to make sure that's, you know, it's just the right amount of Jack. You're not too much, not too little. Yeah. I think whenever you have a a star like that, you're going to have to, you're going to have to make a decision ahead of time for how you're going to cover a movie that is based on an ensemble cast with a gigantic star at the center of it. And I think you're right. Like, how do you make sure that this movie doesn't get doesn't become a Jack Nicholson movie? Even nowadays, when we, you know, you watch it now, when he's a legend and it still watches like a really strong ensemble movie with a really great actor at the center of it. Um, and I do credit, I credit both of them. I think Jack knew what he was supposed to do. Uh, and I think Milos Foreman understood a way to film this. Uh especially by putting so much emphasis on reaction shots that it created this atmosphere mm-hmm. of, the, yeah. of being able to not necessarily get in the minds of these people. I think that happens slowly. You do get in their, their point of views a little bit, but just to, to be invited into an intimacy with each of the key players who are make up the ensemble in this institution, Jack becomes one of them. You kind of start seeing them through the eyes of, of all of them, not necessarily one specifically, but you're kind of watching Jack in the middle of it. I, I wouldn't even say that I feel like I have McMurphy's point of view in this movie, which I think is one reason why, to your point, Dave, 
you do kind of successfully have a conflict whenever he's when at the end of this movie, when he finally goes for Nurse Ratchet and puts his fucking hands around her throat and starts choking her out. You do kind of feel like she's she might be the hero of this movie. And I'm not I don't think it's supposed to be hmm. clean. I, I think you're supposed to yeah. live in that conflict for a little bit. But I do want to give Jack credit, though. I think a lot of times people in you know my generation, especially um, and Jeff as well, uh, people who are coming up studying actors, sometimes Jack slips through the cracks because he's a little older than De Niro Pacino and those guys who really exploded in the 70s. Um, and he's also not Italian. So even though he, he screen tested, uh, for the Godfather, he was not, he was not in any of those like really intense, very successful new wave Italian based, uh, Italian character based movies that Martin Scorsese and Sidney Lumet were making in the seventies and eighties. So Jack has always kind of like been Jack, but when you go back and look at his early work and read about how serious he took the craft, it, it, it kind of relieves a little bit of that that fun that he had being such a massive movie star and talking about his quote, you know, his money, like he would, he didn't do anything for less than $10 million. As soon as he got there, nothing, he, he didn't take a single job after that. And he talked about it all the time, uh, jokingly, but everyone who knew him always said that like, he took this, he took his craft as seriously as anybody else who we think of as legendary acting stars from the time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll give it up. <laughs> oh, we got the gush alarm. Right, it's always was, John. Yeah. It's so funny because he's you. the biggest he's the biggest cynic in the group, and here he is. He always gets the gush alarm. you just joining us, this is a drinking game. Uh, yeah, if you uh, gush on about a film too long, you get to drink, and if you criticize a film, you get to drink. Everyone's up to date. <laughs> Carry yeah. on, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me wins. ask you guys this question because exactly I, I heard delivered. somebody. I was listening to an interview with Michael Douglas talking about producing this, and... This was Paramount, right? Pretty sure this was a Paramount picture. Yeah. Uh, and I think okay. Robert Evans was still running the studio at the time. Same guy who greenlit The Godfathers and took a bunch of big risks in the in the 70s. And But Michael Douglas was just making a bigger point at the time. I don't even think he was talking about Evans and Paramount. But he was just saying the- that this, this would never, ever be produced by a studio today. Ever. This, this would be thrown to the wayside as an independent film. I don't know if they would have been able to get as massive of a star at the center of it. And they certainly would not have marketed it as their tentpole film of the year. And look what fucking happened when they took that chance. This is one of three movies that have won the big five, the Grand Slam at the Academy Awards. That's three. Uh, What are the other two? Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Frank Capra's It Happened One Night, which was maybe the first Academy Awards <laughs> and he was the head of the Academy at the time. It's a great movie. Uh, but um, so this is, this is a grand slam. This is a winner. This is, uh, this is one of those movies that I just don't know if anyone could anyone really have a lot of problems with this movie or would you at least trust their taste if they had issues with this movie? I mean, I, I have one question and one issue, but it's a, it's a, it's a two second throwaway. Uh, and it's uh, I'm just wondering, do I, cause I haven't I've seen enough of Jake's, films to like know for sure but do all of his films start with a shot of the mountains and a car driving through it is, is, i was just thinking is that. that a contractual I, yeah. thing it's like um but also uh the one thing that grated on me a little bit and it's po- probably because the modern day audience was when he was mocking the chief uh when he first met him in the hallway and he starts doing the indian dance and and that sort of thing and apparently that was an improvisation and i'm but i'm wondering 
was it was the intent to show that he's an asshole coming in or was that a leftover relic of what was considered funny in the 70s it's probably a little bit of both but if i think jack understood that mcmurphy you're not supposed to uh i don't think you're supposed to be able to to get a grip on whether or not he is capable of knowing the difference between acting like an asshole and being an asshole. Mm. I don't know if he actually is an asshole or not, or if he likes to just fucking push every single button he can to, to uh, uh, is he just a deviant? And I don't think he knows that or not. So my, again, I'm going right. to tip my hat to Jack because that is like a famous, like improvised little moment. And obviously it's very offensive. I think he's too intelligent not to know that I need to teach this audience who I am as quickly as possible so that I can at least start to confuse them quickly and they can start to play that game with me. I mean, it worked. Do I like him? Do I not like him? Yeah. And I think it worked. So I know what you mean, Dave. It was a little offensive. Obviously, there's some offensive stuff for the way they talk about the women as well. But it, it all played into this confusion that I had about his character, which made me more confused about my take on very complicated mental health issues hmm. and how our society looks at those. That's right. fun watching this in this time. I, I It took me a second to get into the film too, because there's a lot of setup, because really, really, this is a film where they're in the mental institution the whole time. So I say my favorite line that I say on this podcast all the time, which this is a play. The whole thing's a play. Um, this is meant to be on, it's a, sing, it's a single set, except for when they go fishing, uh, even the basketball court, like they could easily do this on stage. Um, and so with, with plays, usually it's all about character building at the beginning. And yes, there's exposition, but it's figuring out who the characters are. Uh, and, and film tends to just sort of tell you, you know, that's like the, the worst, the, the most mediocre films would just explain to you. And they do this a little bit, you know, the, the, um, the head of the psych ward sits Jack down and he basically says, so, uh, look, you're here because you pleaded insanity and, and we're here to test you to see if you're crazy. Um, so we're going to be observing you. And of course, that's also like the audience. You can know, like you observe him too, if if you think he's crazy. And I think Jack is the actor is smart enough to know that you have to be playing the line a little bit because even if you are not crazy and if the whole point of this movie, which the, the author of the book is very clear that uh, psychotherapy was trying too much too soon um, and he was critical about it. Um, he explored with a lot of experimental drugs not too long after this uh, book came out. So before the movie came out, he would have happenings and he would experiment with doing different drugs uh, to treat PTSD, Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think Jack being offensive like that is something that nobody would take the chance on nowadays. And I'm not saying that you should offend Native Americans in this film, but I think you should if, if your you character would have ever if you've <laughs> if you've ever been on the, if you've ever been on the Internet. There's a lot of offensive yeah. shit out there. So if we don't broadcast any of that on television, then we're, we're not entirely in tune with what's going on. Again, I'm not endorsing yeah. offensive content. There's more offensive content coming up in our third film, which we have to talk about. <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out with after the 8% beers. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, to defend offensive, uh, offensive content if it's honest, if it's truthful to what yeah, a character is doing that is going to build yes. the story yeah. responsibly. Yeah. It would be irresponsible yeah, to like, not like, do it and the, yeah, the, if the he only, was actually like yeah. that. The only, <laughs> the only reason that I brought that one up is because it was a singular moment that stood out from everything else and it just didn't feel like it fit to me, mainly because it, it made me uncomfortable. Um, but, also, though, it, isn't that great, yeah. though, that when you finish the movie and you see that giant character arc of friendship that he has with the chief, yeah. you think they're never going to have that because he makes fun of them the hardest at the beginning. 
So I think, again, Jack, maybe he had yeah. this whole script in his hand and he was like, there needs to be a moment at the beginning where you think there's no fucking chance the chief will ever talk to me. Hmm. And, then, and then I, yeah. yeah but I it's know. cool too. That they, I don't know. And then early on, he says to the chief, like, you must be as big as a tree trunk or something. And, and nowadays we would say, that's not very kind. You shouldn't say that. But then at the end of the film, you have the symmetry of the chief basically feeling, you've made me feel as strong as hmm. a mountain. Um, so again, we're not saying this is right, but this is murky. Yeah. It's murky territory. It's in a mental institution. So obviously this is not going to be PC, right? There's going to be some questionable things going on. I think there's a lot of laughter. I watched it with my, my parents who are live here on Twitch. Um, I, I watched it with them and we laughed a lot during the film. It, did, it took me a second to get into it because it did feel like a play and I was starting to figure everybody out. From the fishing trip on, I don't think it gets any better at all, like on any film. But we were laughing a lot and, and never once in this film did I wonder if that was okay because in a way, I'm laughing at people with, with mental yes, illness. Um, I want to get back to I want to get back to Nurse Ratchet soon too. But like, I, I I was really impressed by that, by just the the way that I was accepted as the audience into this weird world's warts mm. and all. Also, just quickly before we, we before ahead, yeah. we move on to Ratchet, um, quick shout out to Danny DeVito. Holy crap! Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Chris- and Christopher Lloyd yeah. is basically like a Kramer. Kramer has got to be based I mean, off yeah, of this Yeah, Christopher somehow. Lloyd was amazing. Mike Richards, like Kramer. Um, yeah. I want to talk really quickly about that comment you just made, though, because I had a very, that conscious thought as well. Like, I'm like laughing at them. It's not yeah. with them all the time, because I know, but I think, it, I think this movie, there is a taboo that is associated with mental health disorders that, you know, has always been there, no, no matter if we think we're better at dealing with it now than we were. Obviously, there's, you know, over history, we don't lock people up and throw away the key anymore. We got rid of institutionalization and that same, this doesn't exist anymore. What, what, what happened to some of these people who are in the background? Um, but that point you're making, I feel like Milos Foreman, Michael Douglas, Kirk Douglas, all of the heavy, you know, decision makers who wanted to make this movie, I think they understood that one of the powerful aspects of this vehicle is that it's going to touch on the issues we were just talking about. What is inappropriate? Why is it okay to to love these people? Why is it okay to love them because uh, to laugh at them because you love them, because you start to empathize with them so heavily and you feel so involved with them and there's so there's such a lack of judgment in the way that the camera captures these people that you feel comfortable laughing with them. And honestly, I feel like that is the most important medicine we can have right now in this very sensitive age in our time where everybody's fucking terrified to do anything wrong. Why is it inherently offensive if you don't have judgment for that person or for that, for that thing or for that attribute or for whatever the issue is that somebody might get very upset about? And I feel like this movie tackles that perfectly with nuance so that you find yourself in the middle of this film kind of laughing and you don't feel guilty at all. You feel maybe happier than maybe you felt in a long time because it's almost liberating because we're not allowed to do that right now. Anyway, let's do it. Let's keep going. <laughs> I just just want a quick uh, no one one quick thing. The doctors on the pier when they're on the pier, and he's <laughs> he's he's passing them off as doctors. This is doctor this. This is doctor that. Have you ever seen the Dan Aykroyd film, The Couch Trip? No. I, yeah, I'm wonder, I'm wondering why whether this was inspired because it's literally the plot of that movie is a mental patient impersonates a doctor and gets a radio station interview and goes on air as the uh, psychiatrist. But he fakes oh, he really fakes good. being a doctor, that's... and he's giving people on air like as a radio. He's basically yeah, giving people advice on air. 
Walter Matthau is a is a yeah. Shout well, out, watch sounds... the outstrip. It's it's very dated, but Walter 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 Matthau is, is a Walter. fucking highlight in that because he's just a crazy on the street that Dan Aykroyd picks up and he follows him around. Always hilarious. Um, awesome. Well, okay, so I would love to quickly mm. talk about Ratchet. I know we're we're already kind of thanks to my intro getting into this a little bit. So I'm gonna go ahead and and say two things. I'm gonna gush a little bit about Ratchet here, but also kind of pull back a little bit in that. The pitch for the movie always oversold what I saw Ratchet mm. as. So they always say, basically, Nicholson sees this domineering presence. Dave, you brought up some really good examples of uh, Dolores Umbridge is the perfect example. Nobody can possibly see the fifth Harry Potter movie and not know that Dolores Umbridge was a domineering authoritarian presence who overstepped her. And if she, if she got her way, then everybody would be the worse off for it, for sure. And so I watch this movie and I'm like, she's not authoritarian enough. Now, having seen a lot of plays, for instance, this is a manipulative person. So she is a lot of these people are there voluntarily, which is a huge reveal in this movie. And the reason that they're still there voluntarily and the reason that McNulty really shake rocks the boat a little bit is because she's called McNulty that she's the only one. You mean watch you went to the Sorry, wire? Damn it, the wire. <laughs> McNulty. McMurphy. Even the way she says, even though the way she says. Yes, Mr. McMurphy. The way she says that, it's it's condescending. Even though it seems sincere, it's 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 sincere. It's it's condescending, playing as sincere, which makes it twice as menacing. And maybe in the cinema, I would have read that more. But in in actually being able to analyze it this time, because her role is not that big, that would be considered a supporting performance mm. now in the age of category fraud, which I am abjectly against. Um, that would definitely be considered a supporting role. But she. The way she manipulates everybody with that psychosis, and you never even see her do the the EK the um, electroshock therapy. Yeah, she doesn't actually do it. She you just, just know that she's it. in charge. And I'm sure in the book it's worse. Oh yeah, the book. Yes, the book, which is by Chief's point of view, so we have a better insight as to who she is because mm. Chief is the one. I mean, as, as soon as in the book, as soon as they're I, in the I interview was, uh, where they're talking about what to do with him, and she's the one that's fighting to keep him there, you kind of know it's going to get ugly. Yeah, like, right. But, but the, yeah, even and that's then, and that's even, the scene for me where she basically says, like, I don't want to put off our problems. And you can see it in her eyes that what she means is I'm not done with him yet. And even though it's not I, I it, in today's day and age, look at Ratchet on Netflix. Th- you do not get that in this. That is yeah, what's implied. That is what people I, I, are going I feel to like, sleep I feel like that's based on the legend, not what actually happened. Exactly. Which, you know what? Yes. I, and I'm not going to talk critically about the show because I haven't seen it at all, but. Jeff, I love that you're bringing this point up because I think it's just another example of, I think we're getting a little bit lazy with our storytelling. I'm not talking about the show. I'm just talking about in general. I saw this when I was a younger person for the first time, probably early teenage years. You know, I was trying to watch a lot of great movies that were older and won all these awards and everything. And I remember having the exact same feeling and then watching it as I got a little bit older and certainly within the last 10 or 15 years, as I developed, you know, better senses for watching and interpreting more complicated stories and storytelling, this became much more interesting to me because you have to work a little bit to get on McMurphy's side so that you can see her the way he sees her because the movie doesn't spell it out. So there's that one scene. Yeah, that's right. And exactly. I, think that's, I think that says something that like we don't need, we shouldn't have it. You, you, you shouldn't have to have something rammed down your throat, not only out of principle, but I think it's actually cutting the story off a little bit at the knees if it's that explicit that quickly. There's not going to be as much wiggle room. You're not going to have to do as much work as an individual to determine how you feel about it. 
So there's that scene in the middle where Jack is talking to, I think it's his second time when he's in the a private session with the doctor. It's actually Whoop. cutting the story off a little bit. At the a little repeat it's there. <laughs> we had a little okay. echo there. Yeah. And apologies, it, um, apologies. Keep going, keep going. And he, he's talking to, he's complaining about Ratchet. And he says a line, she likes a rigged game, if you know what I mean. And I feel like that was the first moment where I was like, thank you. That was my first real hard kernel where it wasn't that she was just an oppressive bitch in his eyes, like this authoritative, you know, woman that was telling him what to do, because obviously he has issues with women and stuff. It was very specific that there was a way she was manipulating the power she did have. And the fact that she had any power at all over him, not authoritarian, she didn't run the entire hospital. She had just enough to make him realize that he had none. And I think by do- once you go on that, you start pulling at that thread, you realize that he starts losing his mind because he figures out that they don't see it that way, that they are under her spell and that he's alone in that perception. I think it's just way more interesting than having her be an um. Oh, the double gush! (laughs) Somehow I didn't get the double gush. I must be phrasing my things really My finger was on the button. You just just bailed just in time. We could go on and on about this film. Dave, is there anything else you want to say? Because I feel like we should start. Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif from uh, like- Fuck me, dude. Nobody saw it coming from, from the- like from the oh, but like he's in he's in everything, man. He's in Star Trek. He's in Lord of the Rings. He's in younger brother and uh, the Chucky franchise. Dude, West, uh, West, um, like and it all the series with the uh, me and McShane. Oh, uh, oh Deadpool, dead, uh, dead, the, the, Deadwood, dead, Deadwood, Deadwood. Oh, Deadwood, yeah. yeah. Um, Deadwood's great in that. Deadpool in the brain. Uh, but like nobody saw it coming. He was just amazing, and like he from from the party scene at the end or near the end to his end. He's just fucking amazing. So hat off to a phenomenal performance at the end. of It's it's like even right at the end where normally some movies would wind down or they wind up or whatever. This keeps the pace consistent and just gives you some phenomenal performances that are a joy to watch. The performances. It is McNulty's fault. I know we can't, maybe we can't say anything. It is his fault. And I know we can't say anything too specific about every single one of them, but like, again, the way they chose to capture him, like this movie would not work. If, if the style of acting that we have praised before so much on this show with the 70s, these people were just behaving and they just had cameras pointed at them. Nobody was trying to steal scenes. Nobody was trying to get more mm. lines or anything. It was so, it was such a, a giving ensemble. You could tell. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just want to point out one more amazing Jack moment. You can, you know, this motherfucker is a master with that last close up when he, when the window is open and him and the chief could leave, but they're waiting on, on Billy to have sex with Candy. And it's just that tight close-up, and it just sits on him, and he's just dealing with why he doesn't want to actually yeah. leave yet. And mm. it is fucking master-level act. I mean, that's just everything you need to learn is in that shot. Like, unbelievable. All right, people, that was a fantastic discussion of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if I dare say so myself. I hope you enjoyed the film. It is available for stream on Netflix, probably because... Ryan, Mc- Ryan Murphy's, Jesus Christ, I keep wanting to say McMurphy. Ryan Murphy's Ratchet, <laughs> starring Sarah Paulson, is available on Netflix. Find it. Tell us what you think. You can reach out to us on all the socials in the episode notes or right here on Twitch if you're watching live and you're one of those couple people. We are going to be back with an awesome fucking film, an Al Pacino performance for the ages. Dog Woo! Day Afternoon. Stick around. We'll see you soon. Come fans.
<laughs> back. back. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope you had a good time talking about one Break, flew over. Breaking in real time. I hope you had Breaking in real time. We've never done this before. I hope you had a good time talking about <laughs> One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We are going to continue our discussion yeah. of films from 1975 talking about Dog Day Afternoon. What a weird expression that they made a title of a movie. Dave, you want to talk so bad. I see your I see it. Oh, <laughs> you want to speak so I, bad. I, I, I do. I really do cuz right. I this blindsided the fuck out of me. I hadn't seen it. I didn't really know what it was about. Um, I looked up what the event was, and I was like, oh, okay, this, yeah, this sounds like it'd be interesting. And f- talk about fucking pull you in. Holy shit, dude. I laughed so hard in the first 30 minutes of this. Mm. And I, I, I would kind of liken it to, uh, and I know I've made this reference before, but I'd liken it to Fallen Down. Uh, falling down where mm-hmm. like for the first half an hour of the film, it's a wild ride and you're laughing. And then all of a sudden it starts getting like not so funny. It's like this escalates, and it, and it, um. So yeah, the ba- the basic premise is uh, these guys decide to rob a bank. Uh, there's three of them. Uh, one of them lasts about I want to say thirty seconds into the robbery, and then bails. <laughs> that's that's uh, one of the funniest moments. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 just He's basically ev- everything like, that could possibly go wrong during this robbery goes wrong right down to like the head teller being a stronger woman than the two robbers are, <laughs> and it's. It's, but like the fun thing is like the it's worth it just for the first like two minutes of this movie. It opens with a shot of like old New York, and it, my wife was watching it, and she's like Brooklyn born and raised, and so she's like, "This is still there. That's still there. That's still there." And it's like, but it should have given it away because it opens with a shot of the Circle Line, and then pulls out, and, and there's an old Carnival cruise ship sitting there. And I don't know if that's not a sign something's about to go horribly wrong, what the fuck is? <laughs> with years of experience on the sea comes in with a carnival cruise ship joke um come at me carnival uh, all right so yeah al Al pacino is the mastermind behind this bank robbery and he has his friends uh john cazal who plays sunny john cazal you may know as fredo from the godfather john cazal is up there on every sane person's list of the greatest supporting actor of all time his famous stat john cazal is that he was in five feature films that's just it. he's a theater actor in new york five films all five of them were nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> he was in Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. That's it. Those are his five films. And I'm done. I'm done. He also yeah. dated Meryl Streep. So, come on. All-timer? He's an all-timer list, right? What? Wow. Yeah, he dated Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were together. And actually, De Niro. So, him and... We, John, we can talk about this some other time, because I know you love the connection between Pacino and De Niro and Meryl Streep in the 70s. Um he was dying of lung cancer, and that's part of the reason he was on The Deer Hunter. And Meryl Streep is his girlfriend. It's part of the reason that she was in The Deer Hunter, and De Niro was a fan. So anyway, it's it's incredible. Apparently, they all shared an apartment at some time. Cazal, De Niro, and Al Pacino. How about God, that? Dude, that's, that's, so anyway, that's so um, I think the most important setup for this movie, yes, Dave, you said it brilliantly. They're, they're robbing a bank. The third person... Literally in the like in the first thirty seconds of the robbery says, "I'm not gonna make it. I can't do it. I'm not gonna make it." <laughs> yeah, and Al Pacino's just like, "Okay, we'll go." They walk in. Uh, Al Pacino so he sends him home. <laughs> Al Pacino walks in with a flower box, so it looks like a box. It looks like he got a gift. And then um, John Cazale, it's a briefcase and their guns, and they rob the bank. And they're, what I will say about this is they do know a lot about banks. I think that's helpful to know. So it's not just a buffoonery. Like Al Pacino, did, his character yeah. did work at a bank, so he knows how to set off the triple arm. He knows that the money he, yeah. is going to set off the die. You know what I mean? Like he, he, 
it's not he's, like they're doesn't buffoons. know the logistics of being a robber like he's he's dropping fingerprints everywhere they're dropping everyone's real name it's a shambles like case yeah. the place also, for the love of god like he he went to he had to spray the, uh, the camera with paint and like he realized he wasn't tall enough to get up and spray the camera with paint so he had to get it's a go so and get a chair great. and spray it. like it's yeah it's it's, it's so the, great yeah the the robbery is definitely not union there's there's a reason uh, I'm going to set it up this way. I, I know that, it, yeah, it's a bank robbery that goes wrong and, and it lasts hours because he gets busted. The cops, the FBI, everybody shows up and he has the hostages, but he's not mean to the hostages. He just has not them. And so he's trying to figure out how to get out of it. And that's the premise of the movie. I think the two things we to know about point this, out this is based on a true story too. It's definitely based on a true story. Real. And I think hmm. it was the year before 74. Um, so, or maybe it was 72. It was like in the early seventies that this really happened. Um, and we'll talk about more of the details. I think a great thing to know is this. Al Pacino was leaving Godfather Part 2. He was filming Godfather Part 2, and this was the next movie he was going to do, directed by Sidney Lumet. And he didn't want to do it because he was going to be exhausted from Godfather 2. And so Sidney Lumet said he was offering the part to Dustin Hoffman, and Al Pacino said, absolutely not. I'll do this on a day's rest if I have to. <laughs> so he refused to let Hoffman have this part, but he insisted that John Cazale be the sidekick, because yeah. in real life, the sidekick was not somebody like John Cazale. So the two of them come in together, very under-rehearsed, and they basically live on set. It becomes a play. They rehearse, and then they shoot right like no rest and so what you a see a lot of this was improvised too if i'm not mistaken a lot of it came out of rehearsals and even more was improvised the famous scene with um john cazale where he says where do you want to go and we get out of here and he says wyoming that was not in the script and then they had to like call back to it four times because it's such a ridiculous thing to say because wyoming's not a country but it wasn't <laughs> in the scripts anyway um another thing to know about this movie is we talked in the last segment, Jack Nicholson, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. John had mentioned that not a lot of people talk about Jack as far as the act, like as far as one of the great actors of all time, which he is. He's three Oscars, if that matters. Um, Pacino is. And part of the reason he is, is because of movies like this. He does things that in acting school, you're taught to be like Al Pacino. The way he struts outside the bank any movement class you've ever taken in, in, in acting school or theater class where they teach you how to move, not a single one of those fucking classes teaches you how to walk the way that Al Pacino does outside of that bank. The way he's in the <laughs> bank and he's hurrying, but he's wearing nice shoes, so he slides across the floor has never been done in a Shakespeare production that I've ever seen. So all like the traditional classical ways of teaching acting, Al Pacino defies all of them, and yet it's somehow better, more enchanting. You, what you said, Dave, about him not being able to reach the thing, this is like an actor's mm. dream come true. Stop trying to be funny. Put yourself in situations that you can never get out of. It's like, this is an actor's dream come true, this movie. It, it, I, I watched this when I was like sedated on Percocets a long time ago from a surgery, and I've never forgotten it. And, and watching it again, it just was like, it's like PTSD watching this movie again. It's so great. Ah, oh, I got the gush! I don't even know how long that was. That could have been a seven-minute rant for all I know. It was so good. John, you've been quiet. What did you think of the movie? Don't no, stop I, I like listening to... Dave, keep going, dude. What else did you... This is your first watch. Like, what else... What else fucking got you about it? Like, what, what, what was so interesting to you? Like, you said it sideswiped you. You weren't it, expecting I it. I wasn't expecting it to be one funny, as funny, like as hilariously funny as it was, and le legitimately funny. Um, and I wasn't expecting such diverse characters in it like they they like when his wife turns up and it's a guy and <laughs> yeah. like they go down that road and i was not expecting expecting that but like this is the turns that the actual event took and i was like this is this is a bold choice in the in like 75 to be like playing this kind of role and i'm glad they did it was it was an awesome choice 
But there's also like the head teller was a fucking highlight for me because she is just amazing. She's she's up him. She's up the cops. Like when they like she's telling the cops off. She's taking shit from no one. And every time and then half the people in the bank end up being nice to these guys. As as it goes through. It's just there's so much to love about the movie and not and almost nothing to hate. Did you think about the I Did think you think about the family guy scene where they're that, like, is this your first bank robbery? And like the girls, they're like the little <laughs> girls don't want to leave the robbers because they had such a good time. I was enjoying this film so much. I didn't even cross-reference a family guy reference. I thought about that a lot. Sorry, John, what were you saying? I think this movie encapsulates the term, because we use this term sometimes when we're talking about uh, styles of, of acting and styles of storytelling. This movie is the pedestrian movie. Every single aspect about the way it's captured, the way it's, it's performed, the way it's written, there is nothing, um, God, and I mean this positively, there is nothing overtly cinematic about this film. It is, it is, it is painfully grounded in pedestrian uh, realism which I think is what creates so many obstacles because it's almost like it's almost like a slice of life in a heightened circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> like my brother and I were talking the other night about how we both struggle sometimes with like cop movies and, and heist movies unless they do what this movie does so well where the circumstance of the heist or the thing that's happening actually is just a vehicle to deal with a character drama. So like this this whole movie... Yeah, it starts out in this ridiculous, absurd way where they're going to like rob this bank and then more details get introduced, like the fact that he's doing it so that his his um, his wife, um, the man, because he has he has two wives. He has wife, uh, a woman that he has children with, and he has a man that he married who he also calls his wife. He wants to pay for her sex change operation, and that's why he's stealing the money. So the circumstances are absurd, but the circumstances take the back seat for me. So more about what happens with the slice of life interactions, like you're talking about, Dave, between him and everyone in the bank, specifically the slow arc that happens where Al Pacino's character, Sonny, begins to realize that for the first time in his entire life, he can make a difference. He can, he can make people's lives a little bit better. And those are the people in the bank. And then the people outside, Jeff, you were talking about the just a quick little anecdote. I have heard before that Al Pacino came from the actor's studio. They do a lot of work with animals. Folks, that's when you literally like take on the, the prowess and the way an animal might move. I've heard that he worked with a tiger in a cage outside on the sidewalk. Like a tiger, like inside of like a, like in a zoo or something. So he could like, he couldn't escape from there. He couldn't actually break out and kill anybody, but he had that energy. When he finally realizes that the audience for lack of a better word, that is forming around these cops on the hottest day of the year in New York City is getting fucking obsessed with him. And he starts the Attica rant and realizes mm. that he has power. For the first time in his entire life, he has power. The movie changes there for me because if it turned into, it's it's a juxtaposition. If it, if it was only him feeling like he was this radical, adrenaline-driven guy that we see on the outside, this movie would be half as interesting. He immediately walks back inside and becomes more tender and more sensitive to what is happening to the man and the women who are in charge of this bank. So I create, and, and then he has uh, John Cazal's character that you can't, that, that relationship becomes even more confusing to me as the movie goes on. 
and then it encapsulates with just a sorry, I know I'm, I'm gushing like a motherfucker, but it ends with <laughs> I know, I know. That that relationship ends with just to show the acting. I, I'm sure Sidney Lumet, I'm sure it was on the page. I'm sure they knew it was gonna happen. I don't know what was written, Sonny breaks down or whatever the fuck it was. But John Gazal's character kind of takes such a back seat until he's literally in the back seat when they're so that when he dies at the very end, and Sonny has gotten so wrapped up in this saga that he has driven for the entire fucking film, when Al Pacino finally, when it finally hits him after he sees John Cazal's body get go by him on the stretcher, it turns the knife even harder. There's like this whole new catharsis okay, yeah, that, because that scene he had he had like forgotten that. Oh my god, I came in here I, with my friend. I can tell you the last <laughs> the last three minutes of this movie is pretty much just a story being told by Al Pacino's face yeah. as events yeah. happen around him. And, and they, they don't leave and him. Gazelles. And it's just things, yeah, and things, but no, like, well, oh, I mean, the last three by minutes, that sorry. point. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the last three minutes, yeah. It's it's just Pacino and things are happening around him, but it's him and it stays on him. And it's like, holy fuck, dude, what a performance to carry that. There's another scene as well when they're, uh, it's like he can carry something like the will scene where he's, he's writing out his will because he thinks he might not make it. And he's got them notating it, but that is li- oh God. that is literally just a close up and a wide, and the close up is all his face, and they just bounce between the two. There's nothing else happening in that scene except him. Um, yes, Sydney Lumet. Sydney Lumet is so obviously playing by the rules here. So you, by the rule. you love the rules. John they loves made the rules. Serpico together. <laughs> we got to break him. He's, he's like so, the other I mean, house. He, yeah. You got to break them. He, they did Serpico together in 73. I think it was the year before. Yeah, it was after Godfather. So, it was three, three, I think. Yeah. Hmm. So they had teamed up already, right? So they knew each other. And Sydney was just playing by the rules so well. It's so formal. And yet it works so well when you have an actor like that that's going to dictate camera movement. He did not move the camera unless Al went out of frame. <laughs> that's hmm. basically what Except he was doing. And there's, and there's when it, one where he did, and it's so noticeable. Um, and it's the phone call with Leon where Leon, uh, Leon starts on the phone. He's, he's calling him to like, they're having a conversation yeah. and it's a really private conversation, but Leon, you can't find Leon anywhere. Leon like there's, there's the people, wide. the action outside <laughs> like, and there's a cop there eating <laughs> yeah, his dinner yeah, yeah. and right down the bottom right corner of the frame is Leon half behind a cupboard talking on the phone. They make you find this mm-hmm. man. And once mm-hmm. you've found him, then they bring you past and like expose him a little for when he stands up and becomes animated. But I thought that was a really, really interesting choice of shot there. And it really worked for me. That push in, well, just, I mean, just established like there, there, just this to, guy is not in an intimate situation. He's to, standing around well, with fucking no, 400 it was, cops it standing was, around. It was him. to put him in the, like it was to put the man in the corner of the frame and make you look for him. It was, it was like, he was going, see yeah. this man, find this man, see this man. So this is dramatic, and we know yeah. he's never going to get away with this bank robbery. We, it, so mm-hmm. his final plan is to get a helicopter to land on the roof of the bank in Brooklyn to take him to an airport, and then he's going to take hostages with him on a plane to Algeria, and then they're going to drop him off, and then he's going to get out, and the plane's going to take him home, and that's how he's going to escape. Obviously, you're at home, and you're like, okay, I can see where this is going to happen, but how can this how can this, how can this happen? This is not going to fucking happen, <laughs> because this, we know this is based on a true story. This can't happen. This movie's fucking hilarious. Other than, like, obviously, even though you're watching a bank robbery that you know is going to go wrong, yep. this is truly the look in John Cazale's face every single time they turn to him, where he realizes... So John Cazale says early on, he's he's basically the bodyguard. And, and Al Pacino gets to go outside the bank because 
Kazal is inside with the gun and the hostages. But they know that he knows that Kazal's not going to shoot any of them. But Kazal says, like, I will if I have to. And Pacino believes him. And it actually catches Pacino off guard. He's like, I, I know you would. Fuck. You really? <laughs> Even though that's like his leverage. He's basically questioning his own leverage. And then, of course, the last scene in the van with the keep the gun pointed up is is, is haunting. Mm. But every single time anything happens yeah. and they look to Kazal and he has a look on his face like like Pacino will come up to him and it's like, it's going good. It's going good. And Kazal's looking back, knowing that there are 45 FBI agents outside the door. And all he's doing is just staring at Pacino. <laughs> he's not even flinching. He's just staring at Pacino. And and even yep. even Al is like, it's also... <laughs> So one, of, I mean, one of the things I loved also was also the, the the B, some of the B characters, like the wife, when he called his his actual wife, like his wife, yeah, and she doesn't um, want to talk to him. And yeah, no, she she won't stop talking. He's trying to get a word in edgeways, know, and she literally. I, I needed him talking. to scream at her, and it was, and it just got it got so frustrating. You could feel his frustration, and then when his mother turns up outside, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my one god. of the best delivered lines in the movie, where he's like, "Where's Pop? Did Pop come down?" She's like, "Oh, is he pissed at you?" Yeah. It was like, yes. The whole scene. But it was the full well, 70s. Just, I mean, oh, is he pissed off at you? <laughs> it's just, but it's just a, this is just such a good rule. I don't understand. Like, I know things change, cultures change, art changes within that culture. I, I get it. But that's a per, I was going to bring that up as an example. When we were talking about like, just going back to that theme, every time we're in the 70s and I always bring up, they, they did it differently back then. They acted differently. They spoke differently. They, they behaved differently. The repetition mm. that was available. And it's not that they were improving like crazy in front of cameras. That stuff came out of rehearsal. It eventually found its way onto the written script and they performed them that way. So that scene is a good example. Every fucking screenwriter teacher would tell you, look, you probably shouldn't be writing something that's more than a couple pages per scene. How long do you think that fucking scene was on the page? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. How long do you think the dictation scene was? How long do you think the phone call scene was? You have to give room. So I know I made that comment about the rules, but like obviously within the way he covered the film, he was, uh, Cindy Lumet was completely raising up the performances so that the storytelling subverted the form even though he was capturing it in a very naturalistic let's just put it in front of there and let's just let these actors tell the story he was letting these people change the way we would we would normally watch a heist movie by just letting them behave and we just don't mm. do that anymore that movie all those great scenes would have been cut in half if they were produced I mean, nowadays. we do they just in, we do they're just in indie films they're not in studio tent poles you're not getting that there anymore we had that discussion last yeah, week. Yeah, but I still think I still think they're a little bit more nervous to do that because the style of acting has changed. Jeff and I have talked about this many times on this podcast, and we've bitched about it for years and years and years. But like, here's a perfect back and forth that is encapsulates the acting style of the time that was led by people like Al Pacino. Hmm. The first argument between him and the detective. Then what are they pointing the guns at? What are you talking about? They're putting the guns at? No, no, they're still pointing them. It goes on for <laughs> minutes, minutes of them just repeating at each other, and it works. It fucking works. Somebody in the editing room nowadays has been like, we probably should cut here. And you have to just ask yourself, why? The stakes are being raised. There is tension being created. And the more they keep yelling at each other and the more frustrated that detective gets, the more power is taken away from him. Oh my God. So I don't know. I just feel like there's so many examples where it's it's a style thing as well that makes this movie so good. It's not just that the acting in general, the story in general is great. The, the style was necessary to tell this story. I wrote... Do you yeah. agree with that? No, or am I, I'm projecting. No, no, no. I agree with that. I mean, I, there was one other line that stood out in that phone call where he's, uh, he's, he's, he's like, 
Yeah, I don't like it there. They walk around, they've got masks on, they've got a bunch of things on their heads. It's crazy there. He just described New York in 2020. Yeah, that's right. It's a side of the I love it. So, so it's a bank. Algeria. It's, 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 yeah. it's, a, it's a bank yeah. and, and they, have an, they have a live telephone line going to the bank. The, the FBI doesn't get the line for a little bit into the movie. So a TV station calls and talks to Al Pacino and says, why are you robbing then- a bank? And Al Pacino goes, didn't they tell you they got money here? And then, and then the guy goes, well, what if we offer you $100,000 to put this to rest? And he goes, no, 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 I don't need to be paid for this. Like, I don't want and he's you. like, what? It's like, I wrote down that Charles Durning, who's like that negotiator, the hostage negotiator guy who, who works for the FBI, and he's trying mm-hmm. to level with Pacino. Um, he's a cross between Chris Farley and Jackie Gleason. Well, my mom, my mom actually said, my mom actually said Jackie Gleason. So, mom, if you're still watching this Twitch, you got a drink. But yeah, I thought that he, the hostage negotiator is so good. So, Chris Sarandon gets the Academy Award nomination for playing Leon, and yeah, he was good. I mm. think I think Billy would have been better from the other movie from Cuckoo's Nest if he had this part. Me too. I think yeah. he was playing the character. I think we hadn't seen a lot of gay characters on screen. The detective, the, the detective guy is unbelievable in this movie. You never know if he's in on it or not, even though you know he's not in on it. You know what I mean? Like. He's just trying so hard. I mean, it, again, it's, it's so pedestrian that you actually feel like, is that really what fucking happened? Was this guy in the street just putting it's his like, entire career on the line? Put your gun down, guys. This, What's wrong with you? I told him to put their gun down. It's like, I don't trust you, but I kind of believe you. <laughs> There's also, I also want to touch on that I was not alive. Dave, maybe you can, like, you, you weren't, Jesus. you know, you didn't live Ages here at the time. Here. I don't know what it was like <laughs> yeah, in, no. in the 70s. No, no, no. I, I, everything that I have ever heard about the, the frustration and the, the desperation, the gas crisis, the economic turmoil, the post-Vietnam uh, syndrome that America was stuck in, not just for, for vets, like They're these veterans, two characters yeah, the Vietnam vets. You can feel it. You can feel it mm. in the crowd's response yeah. to Sonny. Yeah, they that crowd, needed the crowd that is, fucking thing the, to happen. And that crowd is angry, then happy, then exuberant, then angry. Then, the, then it's a the gay pride parade. Man, it doesn't know what it wants. There's a, yeah. there, is a, there, is a, there is a mania that was happening that needed to, they needed Sonny to strike that match. It was such a catharsis. It was such right. an outlet for them. It, you you totally believe if I had been there in that neighborhood at that time, I would have been on, on those fucking picket <laughs> right. lines. I would have needed this to happen. And and this was a, oh. this was like an OJ right. type story where, where the phone, that, that's what mm. the crowd knew what was going on on the inside because of those phone lines and because the press. So that's why they showed up. It, I love yeah. that they kept getting crank called as well. Like people keep crank calling the bank. How did the how did the oh, FBI yeah, that let guy. that line get through? Are you gonna fucking kill him? You should fucking kill him <laughs> all. Like, he's like, yeah. Jesus, why would I do that? It's like I don't know, you're robbing a bank. Yeah. Why is the guy from Silence of the Lambs calling me? Um <laughs> so good. I'm so glad we watched this movie. I had not seen it in probably six or seven years. I'm so I glad. Think I, I had that forgotten. Movie. Every time we watch movies from this period, I'm just like, oh, yeah, they knew what the fuck they were doing in the also, 70s, dude. This how is- awesome is it that it opens with B-roll of the city, as, as you do in this kind of movie, yeah. and it's Elton John blasting this song I'd never heard of called like Amarina or something. So I don't know if Elton John was out in 1974, but how cool is it that it's like a badass song by, by, like, mm. by a gay pop star? And this film, yeah, you don't realize that that's what this is about at first. Obviously, we're spoiling it for everybody listening, but you don't realize, even if you see the film, you just you just see Pacino, and then you don't realize that's what yeah. it's going to be about. So anyway. It's, uh, yeah. It's, Last point. It, it'll get, like, we gave away the first 30 seconds, pretty much. <laughs> Oops. We gave it away. Yeah. Last point I want to make. The, uh, going with that crowd thing, the way you this point of view, like, even though clearly you're with Sonny, but, like, you feel like you're a part of it the way the crowd is a part of it. That scene in the middle, when John Cazal walks up to Al Pacino and says, you promised me 
that we would kill each other before we would be go back to jail. Mm. So that like took it way up a notch with just within ter- terms of like dramaturgy, like it just like takes the drama way up, but it also clarifies what's happening to Sonny's character, this purpose that he now has in his life that apparently he had no purpose. He was ready to fucking kill himself if he didn't get this money until all this stuff started happening. You know, I'm a big fan of endings and how important they are when they can nail that bullseye of the essential emotional they nail theme. The bullseye. You feel, you feel like, you feel like all the air is taken out of you at the end of this movie when it finally doesn't work out for them. And he finally has to come back to reality and he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. Probably hmm. it nails it so clearly that that rise and fall, I mean, it, it almost makes it all the way up until John Cazal gets, gets, gets killed. So even though you know it, I mean, come on. We've said, already it, already. Said, already We've said, said it already. I already said it. All right, friends. So anyway, just, just another amazing example of like yeah. really, we need, really We need to move this along. All right, we chose two fantastic films. It kind of it kind of plays with our gimmick a little bit of drinking when we say negative things, when we just talk about awesome fucking movies, but these are classics. Yeah, we got to pick We got to pick worse movies. So just stick around for the <laughs> we third We got to pick one. worse movies. So we're going to I don't <laughs> even know how we 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 do not te- we do not talk about these movies ahead of time because otherwise this next movie we probably avoid it. <laughs> But now we have to fucking talk about this movie. <laughs> Guys, we're going to talk about Death Race 2000 in a second. Death Race 2000, 2000 came out this year. It's David Carradine and Sylvester Stallone the year before Rocky. But before yeah. we get into it. Didn't see that coming. The, the random year generator has already generated us a year. Since we're on Twitch, we're not going to do it live. Yes. So we already have our year. And we're not going to announce the films that we've chose and chosen until the end of the next segment. But Dave, can we announce the year? Sure. Next next week we're going to 2014. Woo! 2014, people. All right. So. Yep. Get a beer. Listen to some Dasein. We are going to be back in a couple of minutes with our final segment, Death Race 2000. Was it really that bad? See you soon, Bill Ben. Jesus, Dave. We're back. We're back. <laughs> we're back, people. We were just talking about One Flew Over the it's Cuckoo's not, Nest. It's almost like I didn't know we were going to start. <laughs> and Dog Day Afternoon, two fantastic films from 1975. Mm. So we now have our redemption segment. So for those of us, those of us, Jesus Christ, for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. Appreciate you. All of you on Twitch. How's it going? You can give us a shout out in the chat if you would like. Uh, I've chatted twice recently. Once was a mistake. So there you go. Going well today on <laughs> Twitch. People, we're going to be talking about Death Race 2000. So now here's how this goes. This is a drinking game. So the gimmick is we drink every time we say something negative about a film. So now we've been recording for about an hour and 15 minutes or so. And now here we are. We are going to be talking about a film that we know was not praised. We know it has some... It was not. We know it has some um, feedback that was not that was not positive. And now here we are. We have some drinks. I have two. <laughs> Get ready for the second. I mean, what what could possibly go wrong? It's Herbie goes bananas with butts and bombs. It's Herbie goes. It's you go with Herbie. So okay, hold on. Yeah. All right. So yeah, the, the movie because they they sped that car up too. <laughs> hold on. So here's the pitch for the movie. This is IMDb. This is Death Race 2000, 1975. 
Death Race 2000. In a dystopian future, I'm going to go ahead and say somewhere around the year 2000, from 1975's Mm -hmm. point of view, a cross-country automobile race, get this, requires contestants to run down innocent pedestrians to gain points that are tallied based on each's kills brutality. The longer version is, in the year 2000, against the backdrop of social turmoil, political unrest, and rampant anarchy, a now totalitarian United States of America, sound familiar, supports a brutal (laughs) annual- 20 years ahead of the time. (laughs) A now totalitarian United States of America supports a brutal annual event to pacify the masses, a la The Hunger Games. The infamous transcontinental road race, scoring points simply by running over unsuspecting pedestrians. The national champion driver, Frankenstein, played by David Carradine of Kill Bill fame, has to race against fast contestants such as the beautiful cowgirl Calamity Jane, the neo-Nazi Matilda the Hun, the Roman gladiator Nero the Hero, and first and foremost, the Chicago thug and ambitious challenger, Machine Gun Joe, played by Sylvester Stallone the year before Rocky. Who will score the most points in the Violent Death Race 2000? So this is the year before Rocky. So when everybody sits there and says, Sylvester Stallone was just an unknown actor. And no, he was in this movie. He was pretending to be an unknown actor because he did not want to be known for this movie. That's how he got Rocky's script produced. <laughs> he was, uh, uh, John, John, you can't call, you can't buzz me. You don't have the controls. <laughs> no, he can. Um, he can. He can. There, fuck, he can. <laughs> That's the setup. So, so there's two things going on. You want to race to the front, but there are checkpoints. So it's timed kind of like the Tour de France where they have stages. Um, so you want to you want to be the fastest driver, and you also want to kill the most Tour amount of people. Tour de France with fatalities. It's sort of what it is, right? Because they like have massa- they have a group massages, a lot of nudity. Although ours, ironic, ironically, don't ironically don't they blame the French by the end of the movie? Touche. We're gonna talk For about. The state we're of the definitely world, yeah. gonna talk about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they do it because they apparently um, are pro Nazis in this movie, which is very offensive, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, yeah, so it's basically they. You want to be the fastest. You want to kill the most, and then you get additional points for kills, such as senior citizens get more points, teenagers get more points. It's totally fucked up. It's ridiculous but then again if you like the hunger games and think this is offensive you should just go to sleep tonight and just think about that (laughs) oh rue died but she had to for the hunger games this movie sounds fucked up no you need to sit back and think for a second (laughs) anyway who wants to go first i i want to start by saying that i watched a double feature this morning for this podcast immediately back to back of one floor of the cuckoo's nest into death race 2000 are you okay <laughs> and i felt like i felt like i was mcmurray like watching Mc, this McMurphy. thing look to to its credit mcmurphy to its credit, <laughs> this movie knows it. sure you're right you're right you're right we've called him three different death things race 2000, during the this. <laughs> death race 2000 knows what it is I will. I will give it that. We are positive film criticism like podcast. Good job, John. You nailed it. You nailed the, the yeah. game. Yeah. They they know what it is. I think this is a Roger Corman production. Like they knew exactly the satire, the low production value. They knew what they were doing. I don't think their expectations were any higher than the reception they received. 
I think that's why it's I mean, probably aged a little better no, than you, you think it has. Guys, a 6.2 rating on IMDb is not that bad. Show for, some respect. This, movies. this spawned a six-film franchise. Like, why wasn't six, this in our face-off? Six films. Yes. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Now, I, I felt bad for every woman in this movie. Like, this is one of those times where, like, I argue this all the time. I am the voice on this podcast who is the loudest, like, no, 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 time capsule. We can't, we can't be too judgmental about those things. This was tough for me to watch. The sexploitation in this movie was very offensive to me. Yeah. Even like, though they knew wait, what it was. Let's give women positions of power, but also they're naked. And then show them naked. Yeah. yeah like, every, sing- every single female character in here, except for that great-grandmother who led the resistance, was naked. Multiple times. For no reason other than obligatory sex scenes intermittently placed in this movie to break up the race at the pit stops. Yeah. I don't know. I thought, because there was even a way, that's, the thing that led me down the most was that I don't think they handled that with the same satire that they handled the rest of the movie. I don't know. There was actually like... I don't know. He's got that. He's, know, got, he's got the woman there and he's like, I'm dancing, I'm dancing. And then I take my gimp outfit off and now I'm dancing in my undies. And, you yeah. know, there was, there was a little bit of humor in it. I was okay with that I'm glad scene. that he went like, on to star in season one dancing, of American Horror Story. The dancing was silly. The second time when she was just... Where they just literally pulled back just to show her naked from behind, laying on the bed. I was like, I don't know. There were yeah. a few things like that where I was like, that was this, totally you're losing exploitive. points. Yeah. That was extremely exploitive. And then they cut to another angle of her that like still showed her hips in a certain way. It's like, I don't know. It was starting to get a little softcore porny and not in a, I wasn't laughing in those scenes the way I was laughing the other times. It felt like they were trying to sell some tickets with the sex, not sell the tickets with the absurdity of it all and use sex as part of the absurdity. It, I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to concentrate like on that. every there's, other screwball There's way more going on in this you're movie. Right, you're right. What I would say to this is if you uh, liked Ford versus Ferrari and you also liked swastikas, this movie is definitely for you. I mean, how fucking prescient. Jesus. Prescient, however you say that word. Portent, no. whatever. How, no. Isn't that crazy? Nothing they, is, they're uh, governing from Moscow? Nothing yeah. is more prescient. prescient. write this? Are they fucking time travelers? Nothing is more prescient than we watched this movie on the same app and they were advertising Fox News during this fucking movie, which was celebrating <laughs> a neo-Nazi talking about the master race with swastikas. And then it literally cuts to commercial and it talks about the Fox Nation's Patriot of the Year. Are you fucking kidding me? Which, by the way, as which, Dave which pointed was, out, which was wow. on the day before already happened so they are advertising they are literally just advertising patriotism in america and fox news on this obligatory it is fucking absurd i know i said so a joke that probably you, was, not in posi- that was not in kind but think about it like this movie has swastikas all over it advertisers should be running for the fucking hills and fox nation is like let's talk about patriots of the year who are the best patriots this is the time to have that discussion you've got the cowgirl matilda the hun <laughs> like get the fuck out of here that's it who wants to follow me on I'll, that? I'll tell you the open the the opening wide shot where they uh like they they come in and they show the stadium and they're showing the races and then it cuts to a fucking wide shot and it's a stadium with a cartoon drawing in the background of a futuristic city. And it, I'm sorry, it just made me laugh out loud. 
in the fucking bad way. That was, that, was, that was just so classic, classic Corman. Every single interior scene was like, what empty retro office building did they take over to film scenes? There's that one moment where they're, uh, it's at the second pit stop and it's supposed to be like a gathering. There's a band playing or, or you know, at least mm. there's live music. And there's supposed to be some like, like people there dancing. And there's like six people. <laughs> it was yeah. just also, classic. The low production value was just Also, when they, they send the girl to find him, like to find Frankenstein. By the way, if you're going to call your character Frankenstein, I expect him to be bigger. Are you talking about penis size or you're talking about um, human size that just didn't well they only showed the naked women really that's that's um, right so <laughs> there are some male butts by the way he did say she... wasn't that the lead into the first uh sex when she said what else did they replace and he's like give me a minute and i'll show <laughs> so, you yes stupid. yes it was do we know t- but, do, we, like, do we know title tiki we, by the way is, is title tiki a friend of the pod that we know Tiki, yes, Tiki yes, yes. sounds familiar there. T- title Tiki is, is, is send a general a lap into our chat. So shout out to Title Tiki. <laughs> um, also, uh, there's one scene where he uh, Frankenstein is uh, he's all totally in costume, so he's wearing his black gimp outfit David with Carradine. his black cape, and and uh, he's uh, he senses someone coming, so he presses himself up against a white wall. <laughs> Who the fuck are you hiding from, bro? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, and the uh, I know we're just making fun of it now. This is terrible, but uh, that fight scene is—I'm never going to forget was that. The Stallone fight scene, fight scene. That was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that was in so Stallone and Frankenstein. So, Stal- like, so Stallone and David. We don't Carradine. have enough money. Yeah. <laughs> like we don't have enough money to cover this well. Let's pull all the way back to the corner of this giant warehouse and just show them from a distance for two thirds of it. Oh my god, it was just so hilarious. The, the, the masking, it was so <laughs> far, the hits were so I, off. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I liked that. I thought it was hilarious. Let me, let me provide a little bit more context about what's going on for everybody. So also... Uh, no, no, you so, didn't. <laughs> so the, the race starts in New York, and all of a sudden, they, they say they they exit the, the Lincoln Tunnel, and they're in New Jersey. <laughs> and I'm from New Jersey, and I promise you, that is not New Jersey in 25 years. That is... There is green grass. There are there are yeah, mountains. It's, not going the other it's way. lush. Yeah. I was like, where are the swamps and the oil refineries? I'm from New Jersey. What the fuck? They are clearly in California. So let's the location scout failed this movie for sure. Buzzle, can you buzz the location scout for this fucking movie? Okay, but <laughs> I don't mind that though. Okay, so the cars are meant to kill. Are you talking about? They exit. They're like they're out of the Lincoln Tunnel, and it's this beautiful York. landscape on the other side of the Lincoln <laughs> Tunnel. Like, are you out of your goddamn yeah. mind? It's obviously Southern mind? California. It's so also okay. So 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 to, to provide context, so so the cars are designed to kill because they're ramming machines. And I don't know if you knew this about the fact that thirty thousand people die a year in car crashes. Uh, apparently, you need to make it more dangerous than that. So people have Frankenstein has like claws. Um, Killer Joe, who Stallone literally has a cannon yeah. on his. It's literally a fucking in canon i think they're teeth dude. Oh, the teeth the teeth sorry the frankenstein teeth <laughs> are there <laughs> so th- these cars are hideous are they, they also have navigators as if oh as if God. they needed navigators in 25 years it's, it's just an excuse to get hot women in like the navigator's seat if you will but then they're just driving around in these cars going across country to hit these checkpoints and they're just looking for people to kill why is there a construction site in operation in new jersey on the day of this race if this race was happening in real life, I'd be hiding in a basement. I know it sounds ridiculous, no, but I'd be so far away. Always a fucking doing construction, construction site in the in middle Jersey. of the route. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. 
<laughs> anyway, so 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 what what ends up happening because we know this movie's offensive and the caricatures. So there's like the cowgirl and all the fans in the in the stadium are like wearing cowgirl outfits and hats and stuff. So anyway, they're they're all caricatures, but there's a resistance because this has to be the last time. This is literally the Hunger Games. There's no way. There's no way that uh, I think it's Suzanne Collins did not know this. Suzanne Collins, uh, Therese, is it Suzanne Collins, the, the author of Hunger Games? Um, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way that they didn't know this because there's a resistance and it's on the inside. But because everything is filmed live, which by the way, flaw, Frankenstein takes his mask off, but they see every crash. So how do they not see his fucking face and that it's not actually scarred if they see all the crashes? Flaw in the movie. But anyway, so hmm. so they... You found the flaw. <laughs> you, you found, found the flaw. So, you found it. So what makes it okay is that the ultimate goal of this is that the person who wants to win gets a handshake with the president at the end of this. You get a handshake with the authoritarian president. And um, the winner, one of the winners out of the five, actually doesn't want to win. They actually want to cause... They want, they want to kill the president. But I'm not going to tell you which out of the five it is. But they they, they might want that. And there's the resistance. But one of... But one of the uh, the person who does has a hand grenade. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's a hand grenade brought to you by the most grenade. fucking literal props department yeah. <laughs> in the fucking world. It's so great. It's like built into a glove. Um, oh my god! That's uh, so Therese says good. yes. Yeah. Suzanne Cons. Thank you, so Therese. Okay, great. So, um, so anyway, the resistance is 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 trying to kill the drivers because they think this is a ruthless game, like the Hunger Games. Um, and so the press the media who loves the event just like the hunger games and they make a lot of their money off of advertising and glorifying this event just like the hunger games um claims that the resistance that is very clearly trying to kill people and everybody knows something is going on is the french in in the american commonwealth and they I, wait the wait french, the, i knew the it quote they say here are you ready but <laughs> this is so good um uh shit where is it the crunch the the, fr- the crunch the french have crippled the cr- jeff damn it hold on <laughs> the the announcer on tv has said the french have crippled our race our economy and our telephone what the fuck are they talking about the french yeah. have crippled the telephone what, what, so anyway, they pretend the French bought AT and T. What happened? They pretend that they pretend that <laughs> like they, they pretend the that the resistance is trying to kill everybody in the shit. race, and then therefore kill the president. They they claim that that is uh, the French. Yeah, because again, the German. They wow. love the Germans, which yeah. is why Fox I News mean, is French- advertising on this fucking movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Rupert Murdoch, save I, us! It's it's really funny. It's uh, it's like I okay I. I mean, let's let's just take a look at the script for a sec, because I don't want to say that this is written in the most predictable fucking way ever. But my wife was quoting it, and she's never seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what you're in for. I'm going to go to bat for it, though, because you brought up Hunger Games, and I was thinking about this while I was watching it. I haven't seen all of the Hunger Games, but I think I've seen two or three of them. How many are there? Four? Uh, yeah, there's four books they made into five movies. It's four. Five, yeah. Okay, so I think Wait, I've seen the first I just three. lied to you. There's three books what that they made into four movies. I, I mixed it up with Twilight. I know that that's something okay. I do very often is mix up Twilight yeah. and Hunger Games. Yes. Three books, four movies. <laughs> that's for you, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dave. God damn it. Catching Fires 2, Mocking Jay, Part 1, Part 2. 
What I appreciated about Death Race 2000, that always frustrated me a little bit with the Hunger Games, the movies at least, I haven't read the books, was that there was an absurdity in the entire world over how they felt about the way the media was covering this dystopian existence and especially these races. I always felt like there was a weird dichotomy that didn't work for me in the Hunger Games movies where like everything that was happening to the people was told in a very realistic, grounded, dramatic style. And then you had people like Elizabeth Banks's character that were completely absurd. It, it never made sense to me. So to Death Race 2000's uh, point here, I don't know. I feel like it actually worked a little bit better for me just because it was in line. The, the whole movie was absurd. So I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to have to figure out what would it feel like to live at this time when some people are living normally and some people are like this news anchor? I appreciated that it was cohesive. The whole world was absurdly different than our world is now. It's not like, can you imagine if this happened? It's like, no, 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 this is fucking ridiculous. Yes. Of course the news is like that. Um, Therese wants me to, know. Therese, do you know what I mean? do, wants do, me do, to do drink you... again for mixing up Twilight and The Hunger Games. John, you're 100% right. It is supposed to be that. satire. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes, yes. They they are aware about that, and I think you're right. That's good. Yeah, I mean, the the role of Frankenstein I read in the uh, IMDb trivia was originally offered to Peter Fonda, who considered yeah, who that. considered <laughs> the movie too ridiculous for words, and I am firmly on Team Fonda. <laughs> Dave, Dave, it's, like, it's ridiculous. I mean, course, dude. Dave, go. Let, let, let me get you to dive into the gimmick. What was your favorite part of the movie? Your absolute favorite part of this movie? Uh, my favorite part of the movie is the fact that it almost had a Thelma and Louise ending. Almost! You're right. That's good. And I don't feel like it would have suffered for it. It might have redeemed the film. <laughs> John, what was your favorite part of this movie? The fight oh, yeah, scene, yeah. for sure. That was just... <laughs> I'm never going to forget that. That was incredible. Rocky. I mean, Rocky. Sly Stallone. <laughs> Rocky. He knew what movie he was in, dude. He was good in this. I know we're making fun I think, of it, I mean, but he, like. He was, but also. He was fucking. He was, he was doing his job. That is how you, you take it very seriously. You, you play it as though it's ridiculously sincere. Like, I mean, did not, I thought he was, he was better in this than I thought yeah, he was going to be. I was like, what the fuck is Sylvester Stallone doing in this, this movie? This movie was the most basic, like, trite script writing because you're like okay well how do we how do we make it look like it's a dystopian future let's make that let's put nazi symbols everywhere okay how do we make him look like an asshole let's make him beat up women it's like there's no fucking subtext here they're ramming all this shit down your throat and it just yeah right writers writers it's about the humor in the future the humor is so bad in this movie one of my favorite lines is sylvester salones where he talks about the i guess it's his it must be his navigator you know some people think you're cute I think you're one very big baked potato. <laughs> the fuck does that mean? <laughs> he owned yeah, it. No, he owned, he it. owned it. I'm telling you, I was also, like, no, how did no, he do You know what my favorite part of this movie sincerity. is? When Sylvester Stallone shows up and they're like, Killer Joe! And he shows up with a cannon on his car and he he's in, so there's a stadium for people. So picture like the Talladega Stadium. He shows up and he gets up and he has a real Depression era. Uh, machine gun, and he just starts shooting shoot, into the crowd. He's like, ah! He just is <laughs> nobody into dies. the crowd. Into the crowd, dude. He shoots at the audience. I mean, <laughs> like a Tommy it's gun. So ridiculous. I also love a depression. I also love era. I mean, him, right? Velma Kelly wore it better. Velma <laughs> Kelly wore it. It's, it's him too that kills his own crew, right? Because you get points for hitting people, and then he, he get he does like a pit yeah. stop. 
And so they finish the pit stop and they're like, you're good to go. And he's like, yeah, and he just kills his own crew. There's a lot of very violent death scenes. Okay. In this. I love All right. Death no, I've, I'm sorry. I've got to, where, where he wastes his pit crew. That was fucking funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. was funny. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. Cause we're That's over there. We're off the deep end. I also really point. love. Yeah. Frankenstein's introduction when they wheel out this stretcher that's with a person lying on it that's covered and the man behind him says he was cryogenically frozen he should come to any moment <laughs> and then he immediately just sits up well, and then they they shoot it like the famous twilight zone thing right where like you see it from his point of view with the mask so you don't know what Frankenstein actually looks like yeah. yeah, I mean this yep. is satire, and then the last—I yeah. love the good. last three minutes where apparently Frankenstein becomes the president, and not his own name. He goes President Frankenstein. I'm sorry to spoil it. Fuck. Anyway, it's—I I love the ending of the film. Oh, you've ruined Don't you've ruined Death thing. Race 2000. And, and we didn't talk about this at all, but the most obvious <laughs> when he, when kills he the guy, like so it's much. been it's been built up, it's been built up that there's something terribly wrong with this man. He's super disfigured. And she's like, take your mask off. And he finally takes his mask off. And he's like, this was your choice, not mine. And he looks fine. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with his face. (laughs) They didn't even attempt some like really bad makeup. No, no, that was was actually an in-joke. Like it was the the mask had the fake skin on it. The whole thing was fake. I Like when he's wearing the mask, he's disfigured. When he takes the mask off, he's fine. I, I do have an actual plot question it was that the confused one, me God a little damn, bit. it's the one clever thing in the whole fucking movie. <laughs> was he... All right, I'm sorry. Was he supposed to be... You remember when they were in their, their third sex scene and he was telling her <laughs> that he was raised... <laughs> that he was raised in a government institution a to become people, what a he marathon. is? Yes. <laughs> Are there multiple Frankensteins? Is that what he was saying? That he's just this year's Frankenstein? I, I honestly don't know. I, I couldn't I, quite put together if he was saying they, I, I was a part of a I was great. I mean, I, I feel like I feel like there were breeding races. The Frankenstein because like, they, they killed him so often. I feel like there were breeding races. As such, or they were breeding them for the race. Yeah, whenever you hear it, what, what movie were we talking about where you were like, whenever I hear the term master race, I usually <laughs> I usually want to turn it off. I can't remember what we were what movie yeah. we were talking oh, about. I can't remember what it was, but the, whoever I whatever movie that was, they died like 30 seconds later, so we're good. Again, though, I got to give it up to them. They knew what movie this was. That is ballsy to use fucking Nazism and swastikas and put it into a in a, an extreme yeah. sincere satire. It's ballsy. It's really it's yeah, really it's ballsy. Of Fox you know ballsy <laughs> and slightly predictive. Yeah, yes. it's really ballsy of Fox News to advertise for them and pretend like they they are. Uh... <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> anything else you guys want to say about this film? I thought. I mean, it was it was really stupid. I think but... we covered everything. I... <laughs> I think it's pretty harmless. It's an hour and 19 yeah. minutes long. It starts well, immediately. It ends immediately. It's harmless oh, if you I also, know that I it's did offensive. like the little end coda. I did like the tiny little end coda where yeah. over the credits, there is a voiceover that explains the history of murder and violence in humans. Yes. So that I, was. I thought that was really interesting. I was like, okay, they were. There's yeah, no commentary here. Like, they, when you they know watch, what they're doing. Unfortunately, when you watch that on streaming, you get about halfway through it, and then it skips to the next thing that it thinks you want to watch. Uh, uh, I got it on YouTube. Yeah. I was able to watch the Yeah, whole watch this on YouTube. Blurb. It's better on YouTube. Hour 19 minutes. Give it a shot. Drink it's a couple fun. beers. Have some fun. Have some let's, fun. Let's oh keep God. going. What are we doing? What are we doing? Throw a watch party on Twitch. You can do it. 14, you guys. 2014. Yes.
2014. We talked about it before we got on the air tonight, so we already have them ready otherwise, to go. Otherwise known as 2014, the year where all the streaming licenses have fucking run out. Because we basically looked... Yeah, we did not have like, like, yeah, so we, to rent like, everything. Usually, we're, usually we have some luck, and we're That's like true. when we're going through the back years, we, um, we find stuff on streaming. For some reason, I think there's like... So I think we worked it out. There's like a six-year period where if you're in that sixth year... All your licenses run out, and they don't renew you for a year or so. So, because so 2014 has almost nothing on streaming. So we're we're going with uh, X Machina. It was on Showtime. Mm. Yes, uh, and we're going with Nightcrawler. That's on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. And we're gonna play. Was it really that bad with the movie Noah? It's so bad. The biblical, the biblical, ep- the biblical epic starring Russell Crowe. I'm gonna need you to say biblical <laughs> again. Just, 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 right just after for Thanksgiving. one more time. All the right words and all the right places. The bull, 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 epic starring. <laughs> all right, film fans. Just a little sneak preview. Jeff fell asleep the first time he saw that movie, so I can't wait for him to actually. Wait, watch you remember it so that? Talk a bunch of very positive film. You remember that? You remember that uh, <laughs> that movie that I f- fell asleep during? That's it? gonna go. Well. I wasn't the only one. Everybody fell asleep. The person Aaron woke you... us up. Okay. She like hit us and was like, no, you made me come to see this movie. You can't fall asleep. I was like, okay. All right. We're going to be talking about those films next week. Can't wait. Film fans. Anything else you guys want to say before we head out? We'll be back next Sunday. Fun. Thank you, you Twitch. We'll be back. Yeah, we'll be Thanks, back. Twitch. Great to meet you.